There is a maroon firebird whose lights are on for now, but they don't seem as bright as they did at the beginning of this worship service. If you have a maroon firebird, I think they said it was parked along the road up there. Um, we would much rather disturb your worship right now than disturb the memory of the worship as you leave. So why don't you go turn your lights off? <clears throat> this is going to be one of the sh- briefer discourses uh, that I've given on a scriptural text because I want to say something to you afterwards <clears throat> about something that happened in the second service last week that I heard about. <clears throat> and I want to talk about that as a church family for a while. This is a distinct parable. Many uh, uh, match it to the one in Matthew. If you read, if you compare it to the one in Matthew, I don't believe they're the same story. I think they're two distinctly different stories. This is of a king, and it may be the only parable in the whole Bible that has a historical happening as its background. When Herod the Great died in 4 BC, he divvied his kingdom up, to the three, his three sons. And one of those sons, Archelaus, went to Rome to claim his kingdom, to be, <clears throat> um, to be found to be king of the, you know, to be anointed or whatever as, as the king. And a congregation of 50 Jews went and followed him to Rome and said to the emperor, we don't want this guy. This guy's a bad ruler. Well, <clears throat> Caesar Augustus overruled. He got his kingship. And so as Jesus tells this parable, it might very well be that as Archelaus went to claim his kingdom, this might be the king. People automatically link this to Jesus. And, uh, and it may not be so automatic, although Jesus may even compare himself to an inadequate king. <clears throat> And it may be that he actually gave some servants equally an amount of money to see what they would do with it. I want you to catch three things here. First, I want you to catch that Jesus was preparing people. Notice the verse 11. He went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to, come, going to appear immediately. One of Jesus' tasks, as he was down in this world, and one of his tasks remained today, to be to get us to wait on his timing. And so therefore, we always hear the message, and we figure it's coming right away, and we figure we're going to to figure into the the eschatological hope, um, even as we stand here, and that may be. But part of what Jesus prepares us for is to operate without his immediate presence. Now that sounds strange to a group. Thanks, Jim. That sounds strange to a group of Christians because on the one hand, we always talk about Jesus being so near and Jesus being able to provide guidance if we will only ask for it. And in a sense, in many cases and in many of your experiences, that is exactly true. The reason Jesus has not provided us the guidance that we ask is because, A, we weren't alert for it. B, we didn't have the patience to listen to it. Much of it is on our hearts. But I read a really neat book on my vacation last week. And it was entitled Disappointment with God. It's by Philip Yancey. And he had in that book the question... He answers the question, or he addresses the question. He's reading along with Job, and I want to do a special teaching on this sometime. Why is God silent for those who seek Him? Why is God hidden sometimes when you're seeking, you're doing everything you know to do, and you still honestly can't hear Him? His theory is, that there are times when God is silent on purpose. Because you remember when Satan went to Job, the contest was, of course Job loves you. You've always shown yourself to him. You've always given to him. You've always manifested yourself through him. Withdraw from him and see if he still loves you. 
And so he says that one of the things that we must all contend with is God having the authority in our lives to withdraw himself from us into a period of silence to see if we will love him anyhow. One, it's, it is easy to, God, to love God when we feel close to him. It is easy when we're getting all the answers, when we get all the power, when we get the miracles. But I wonder if that's more, not more a conditioned or an appropriate response than it is what love is all about. So, Jesus is conditioning his disciples to live independently from him for a while. Second thing I want you to see is the fact that God expects us to do business. He called ten of his slaves and he gave them ten minus one each and said, do business with this until I come back. That is his order to us. No matter what you are given, you need to use it. It's the use it or lose it principle. Unless we are using what we have been given spiritually, we will be filled with doubt. And we will not see the prospering. Now I want you to notice that the reward for the people who used what God had given them was not rest. Get the retirement mentality out of your mind because it's not God's mentality. God never mentions retirement in Scripture. That's an American concept. If I do this, then I can retire. When I, my first, my first uh, uh, parish that I had alone were full of retired people. And I, you talk about a retirement mentality. I would say, boy, let's just do this for the Lord. Well, son, they'd say, we've had our day with the Lord and now we're just tired. And so we figure it's somebody else's turn to take over. Well, I want a young, there were five young people in the whole congregation. I was thinking, who's, you know, who's going to do it? There is no such thing as retirement. And so the reward of God is greater and more significant ministry. More significant responsibility if we've done with that little bit of what he's given us. If we take responsibility to use it. And the third thing, and this is important. Please do not believe that you can ever escape accounting for what God has given you. It is not a choice. It is an order. An order is different from a choice. If God has given you something to use in this world for Him, He will come to you and say to you, what did you do with it? Judgment Day is not in doubt. And God is not on trial. We are. Now this is important because I want you to see this. In this world, things sometimes go better if you just hide, don't they? I mean, aren't some of you in organizations where things go better if you just don't do much? I mean, if you don't get in people's way, and especially if you're in some sort of bureaucracy, the last thing in the world you want to do is make waves. And so people can literally hide their way through a career. And we get the idea, the way I stay out of trouble is to hide. You know, in, there's, a, there's a, a, a military historian, S.L.A. Marshall. I was, I was reading an article, a uh, fascinating article out of Esquire, Why Men Love War. Really neat article. I mean, it's really insightful. And one of the things that this particular historian discovered out of canvassing both in the Second World War and in the Korean War, now listen to this, was only 25% of the men in combat 
who were being fired upon ever fired back. The rest of them cowered underneath cover, trying not to draw attention to themselves. Well, I think there's a lot of Christians like that that say, oh, you know, I, I can buy into that one. I'll just come to church and kind of be one of the crew here. You know, it's one of the things, one of the neat things about a big church. You know, we fill up this sanctuary now. And one of the things that we have to be real aware of in a big church is that people come specifically because they want a period of anonymity. And that's okay. You know, some of you have been burned in other places and you just need some healing time. And that's okay. But permanent anonymity is not an option. Because, see, God's given you something, and he expects you to use it. And you can hide in a church. <laughs> but on Judgment Day, whatever you're behind is lifted up. And God plays peekaboo. And you say, hello there. You know, you're behind this bush. Oh. And God's saying, so where are you? Well, I'm behind the bush. Really? What you been doing? <clears throat> well, it's kind of hiding. Feel a little naked. So, let me say to you what is, what is obvious. There are no trick Greek phrases in this passage, there are no Greek verb tenses that would give you special insight. There is just very plainly the message. If you got it, use it. If God has given you any capacity at all to invest for Him in this world, use it. Because you can't hide. And because He's going to ask you. And because God wants to give you an even more significant ministry than you already have right now. This is a test. This is a test. <clears throat> okay. <clears throat> now, let me get on to the next message. <clears throat> First thing I heard when I got back. <laughs> How many of you were in the second worship service last Sunday? <laughs> okay. First thing I heard when I got back. Uh, something happened last Sunday. Really? What happened? Uh, somebody spoke in tongues. Really? How'd that happen? <clears throat> well, we were having a real powerful worship time, and then at the end of it, this lady just started going and going and going and going. Well, what happened? Well, some people just got up and left. They were real angry. Well, what else happened? Well, I don't know. We just went on with stuff. I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that happened. I'm thankful to be in a body where you can get surprised. I'm, I really am. I really am. And I'm thankful that it happened. On this, this is so neat because I get to start off the year reminding us who we are here. Who all we are here. Now, I know a number of you who are from uh, mainline denominations have no idea what I'm talking about when I say speaking in tongues. You've just never been around it. I, one of the calls I got this week was, what was that? I thought the worship committee organized something and I just didn't understand it, you know? <laughs> well... No, um, in the ancient church, in the primitive church, the first church, there was a dynamic not only on Pentecost. That Pentecost was kind of its own baby because God used believers for unbelievers. And he spoke in other languages in order to spread the gospel. That's not really what we call speaking in tongues. Um, then as you go into some of, the, some of the Pauline writings, then you get the idea that God is using people just to speak in 
maybe another uh, human language, but maybe, maybe in the language of angels. As I speak in the, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, see? And so there is an utterance, and the, the, the dynamic is that God inhabits the devotee to such an extent that he speaks, taking over the tongue. Now, I need to tell you, historically, that the Christian church was not the only dynamic that had speaking in tongues. <clears throat> Many other religions back in that day had speaking in tongues. Many other religions these days have speaking in tongues. So it's not something specifically <clears throat> or narrowly experienced in the Christian church. But certainly, it is not something that you need to be afraid of. Now... Here's the point. <clears throat> what determines whether or not churches do that these days is their interpretation of history. There are some, and, and by the way, <clears throat> that's, what that's what separates all denominations. That's why we have so many denominations. Because different groups of people <clears throat> look into the Bible and they say, okay, what is transculturally valid? That's the big question when you look in the Bible. What is transculturally valid? Now, some people will look in there and they say, don't wear any jewelry. Okay? <clears throat> or they'll read that. And they'll say, well, that's transculturally valid. And they won't wear any jewelry. Some of the holiness groups. I don't think, do Seventh-day Adventists wear jewelry? No, I don't think so. I was talking to some the other day and didn't notice any jewelry, but... But they will say, that's transculturally valid. It says it in there, it applies to me. There are other groups that say, well, that was, that was okay for the day, but they were trying to make a point for the day, and it was not, it's not a transcultural principle. It's something that only applied during that time. So the reason that you have differences at all in whether or not we should speak in tongues is a theory of history. And the people who believe that we should speak in tongues... <clears throat> are the people who believe that all of the gifts have remained valid throughout history. They don't see any shut-off point. They don't see any place in Scripture where it ended. There are other people called dispensationalists that say, no, God has acted different ways for different periods. He acted that way. He needed those <clears throat> kinds of miracles during that day. <clears throat> I know I'm driving you all nuts with this. I'm sorry. <clears throat> Did I ever tell you about the time Becky sang a solo in church? Her last solo in church. She was, she was a high school girl. She was supposed to sing the Magnificat at Christmas. <clears throat> Fifteen minutes before she sang it, she had a glass of milk. She was so scared while she sang that, she just wanted to get it over with. She didn't clear her throat through the whole thing. So she's thinking, my God, I and the whole congregation was going, like she didn't know she had something in her throat, right? She was thinking, I got to get this over with. So I realized that part of the reason you're all clearing your throats is because you want me to clear my, I know there's something in my throat. Leave me alone. I got troubles of my own. So anyhow, there are three loose groups. Well, one of them's kind of tight. <laughs> <clears throat> one is the dispensationalists who say, no tongues. I mean, it's over with, it's gone with, and anybody who speaks in tongues is either exercising a false gift or they're getting too emotional or something, but it's just not a, a, a valid spiritual dynamic. <clears throat> the other group says, well, no, this is, a, this is a great spiritual tool and we ought to do it all the time. It's just part of how God acts with us and so on and so forth. And we're perfectly comfortable with it. And then the third group in the middle goes, whatever, you know. <laughs> now, at Northland, we have all three of those groups. All three. Now, the way of the world is this. <clears throat> the way of the world is that you get 
a group of people who can agree on everything and you get them together and you call them a group. And I don't care whether it's a bridge club or something else, but that's the way you organize groups. You organize groups out of people who can all agree on pretty much everything and then you have a good group. And a lot of churches are like that. Now the comfort level in those churches are this, this big. But the capacity to love anyone's, anyone who's different is this big. See? There comes the rub. What witness is it to build a church where all of us agree? I mean, the world does that. Do not, do not even the Gentiles do the same, you know? That's no witness. What witness is it, though, to have a church family where even though you think kind of each other are a little goofy, they're still a part of my family? I mean, did any of you ever have a weird relative? <laughs> have you? Have you kicked him out of the family? Huh? Of course not. I got an Uncle Harry who says everything, or who said when he was alive, everything four times. Four times. Four times. <laughs> Four times. <clears throat> he was nuts. But he was my uncle. See? Now, <clears throat> some of you might say, well, I love the church, but, you know, there's, <laughs> there's just some weird people in there. What do I do? Well, do what I do. Go home. Look in the mirror. And try to figure out how you ever came to the conclusion that you were such a bargain. <laughs> I do that all the time. <clears throat> we <clears throat> have a great variety of people here. And we have it for a purpose. God wants to teach us how to love. I don't think theology is nearly as important as how to love another person. I don't think what we believe, when, we st when you stand in front of God, you think you're going to recite your theology to Him? Well, this is what I believe. <laughs> you, you think He's going to listen to that? Tell me, what do you believe about me? You think He's going to listen? He doesn't care. He didn't care. Now, what you need to do, what we all need to do, is really be glad for the differences because we will be stretched. And I know that differences will occasionally make you very uncomfortable. The first response I heard out of the event last week was, well, we've got to tone worship down if that's going to happen. And I said, time out here. We're going the wrong direction. <laughs> I don't think we've even reached the power in worship we're going to reach someday. You know, we don't need to do anything to quiet worship down here. See, there are two different dynamics. And traditionally, the charismatic church has had a strength of worship. You know why? Because worship, basically any kind of intimacy, takes a childlikeness. You, you, you need to be free, and you need to trust. That's any kind of intimacy. That's, that's sexual intimacy with your wife or your husband. You know, any kind of intimacy. Take, you need to become as little children. And so that's important for us to learn. And that powerful worship time where we can let ourselves go is a very important dynamic for all of us because we come to worship Him. Dispensationalist churches, on the other hand, have had very, very strong um, preaching and teaching. Very detailed. The Greek comes out and the, and the Hebrew comes out and you can learn. And, and you don't get all the childlike formulas of, well, if you do this, you get this automatically. Because that's how God works. You know? And you, can, you don't have to live in Never Never Land. You, know, to be, you don't have to be airheaded about the whole thing. There's a very strong teaching and very serious holiness in the dispensationalist tradition. Meanwhile, those of us who have come from mainline denominations have a strong heritage. And by the way, I want to start, I told the worship team, I really want to begin to 
put in things like the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed and the Lord's Prayer and the doxology. I don't want my kid growing up and look at the Apostles' Creed and go, what's this? You know? I mean, that's historic, strong Christianity. Now, we have been given to, a, to some, you know, things that irritate us that, that ought not. You know, I know some, of, some Presbyterians probably get a little ruffled when people walk in here with jeans and a t-shirt. You know? Who cares? Who cares? As long as it's not in a spirit of rebellion or I don't care about God. If that's what they got, that's what they got. Look, count your blessing. At least they don't wear in those straw hats with those little beer cans on the side. <laughs> Never seen one. You know? And usually you don't have, you know, the plaid Bermudas with the camera and the Hawaiian shirt and the wingtips and white socks. Count your blessings. You know? The thing is, we want to learn from one another. And we want to stretch to love one another. Now, there is a way of worship here at Northland that's important. And I, I wrote this for the elders a couple of years ago. There are some back there on the table outside that talk about specifically about tongues. And if you're interested in the process, then uh, pick one up. If you're not, don't, I mean, there's only a couple of hundred of them. So only if you want to read this thoroughly should you pick it up. We will not be a body that normally uses tongues in the main worship service simply because it is so distracting to people who are not of that uh, tenor. The minute somebody gets up and starts to speak in tongues, then the person who is not used to that, immediately their attention leaves God and focuses on the one speaking. That is not, not what worship is all about. So therefore, because we have such a wide variety of people one group or the other will not have full satisfaction in this church. The dispensationalists will not hear their, um, their theory preached and the, and, the, and the charismatics will not uh, get to exercise um, everything that they might want to exercise. But we do it because we care more about our neighbors than we care about ourselves. And we want to minister, we want them to have their own fullness and their experience with God as much as we want that for ourselves. Now you say, well, what if, we, what if God has a message for us and we miss it? Let me say this to you. Anytime you believe that God is giving you a message, you take it to an elder or to me. I usually sit right over there. My, that's my pew. Sit right over, you know, in the, in the corner. We don't want to miss anything like that. And that process really solves two problems. Number one, it gives us, 1 John 4, 1, a testing of the spirits to make sure it's from God. Because two have agreed. That's also a biblical process. Number two, it takes ego out of it. You know, I was in many charismatic churches for a long time. And what I saw was rampant ego. What I saw was a lot of flesh getting passed off as a lot of spirit. If your message is from God, you won't care who delivers it. Okay? You won't care who gets the attention. And so therefore, we do have a process. We will not miss those important messages. And that has happened from time to time in this body. For those of you who have been here long enough to know. Meanwhile, the process that we need to continue, not only in the tongues issue, but in every issue, is being able to put our brother first. Being able to consider his needs or her needs instead of our own. Those of you who, who exercise a prayer language while you're worshiping, if you would consider that somebody in front of you, if you start shouting that, you know, I mean, God's not hard of hearing. If you're exercising a prayer language, he can hear you if you whisper. It's all right. But the person in front of you may be so distracted, they might not be able to concentrate on God. Same with raising hands, great, lift holy hands, you know. But if you're six, seven, 
and you're going to go like this. Now, it helps that we got a screen now. I mean, instead of the little thing over there in the corner, that really helps. But if you, you know, if you're, I don't want to start dividing up, you know. Just have somebody at the back go clapping or non-clapping, you know. <laughs> hand raising or non-hand raising. Well, this is section switching, you know. Prayer language, you know, we're here. I don't want to, you know, kind of like to stay all together. All I'm saying is, we got to love one another. We got to love one another. Because that's what God wants to stretch. He wants to stretch our hearts. And if you can't be comfortable in a body where there are many differences, then you probably won't be comfortable here. But no matter where you go, we'll love you. Okay? If, however, you say, you know, I, I guess I don't know it all. I guess I'd like to have somebody who's a little bit different than, than I am so that I could get a little different perspective. If you've got that kind of security about yourself and that kind of self-confidence, this is your place right here. Please, don't any of you, no matter where you... Oh, golly. I, t- uh, I could go on and on. Let's take <laughs> the supper that binds us together. Let's let's share in the Lord's Supper together because our oneness is Jesus Christ. Would you please, would the ushers please come forward? While the elements are being passed, we will be singing together. For those of you who have never taken communion here before, let me share with you that it is open to all who are followers of Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is not a church sacrament, it is a Christian sacrament, and you are perfectly welcome to take it. Um, If you would pass the elements to your neighbor and let your neighbor serve you, that would be great. Oops, (laughs) Oops, <laughs> I'll drink that one. <clears throat> kind of like a Catholic priest who gets the thing, the whole their hair and everything. <sighs> Pray with me. God, thank you for loving us all just like we are. Help us to love each other just like we are. And with this sacrament, of bread and grape live and grow in us we pray in your name amen okay I've got two messages this morning Um, one briefly on the scripture and then another one about something that happened last week in the second worship service I want to talk a little bit about that and I'm tickled to do both um, let me just briefly say three things to you to remember about this particular passage that I think are important. First of all, uh, those of you who are biblical students or students of the scriptures will immediately compare this with the scripture in Matthew that where, he, where he gives uh, three different services, uh, servants, three different amounts, and so on and so forth. It's not the same parable. As a matter of fact, this is the only parable in the Bible that can be traced to an actual historical event. When Herod the Great died in 4 B.C., I think it was, he um, allotted his kingdom to three uh, different people. Archelaus was one of those people. And so Archelaus made a trip to Rome in order to be confirmed in his kingship. Well, during the same time, there was a delegation, pardon me, of 50 Jews who also went to Rome and said, we don't want this guy to reign over us. Now, Caesar Augustus would not hear it, and so he gave Archelaus the kingship. And when he came back, Jesus might very well have been using an actual historical event when he came back 
he may very well have seen some of his servants in their stewardship in his absence. And so, this, uh, just a side note, I want you to know this could be grounded on a historical event. Second, I want you to, to see that this is to prepare, I'm, not, I'm sorry, not second, first, There's, this is the first point. This was for Jesus to prepare his people for a time of absence from him. Read verse 11. He went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. He did not want them to expect him to be in their presence in the way he had been forever. He knew he would be in their presence in a, in a more nebulous way, in a, a way that could seem further away. And so he prepared them for a time to live virtually in his absence. Now here's a point, and it's a point all of us need to hear every once in a while. Christians have been told again and again and again and again, God is always near. And God always has an answer. And God can always be relied upon. And God is always talking, it's your problem if you can't hear him. Well, let's take a look at that for a second. Yes, in the way that God is omnipresent, He is always near. And yes, in the way that, that God is always loving us and always trying to communicate that love, there is always a message for us. But I want you to take something very seriously. There are times in every Christian's life if they are hot after God, if they are going for God all they can, when they will go through a wilderness experience, and they are trying with all of their heart to hear what God would tell them, and with all of their mind and all of their life to sense God's nearness, and they don't. If they are honest with you, they just plain would have to say, I don't know where he went. I can't hear him. I can't sense him. I read a really neat book on my vacation called Disappointment with God by Philip Yancey. And he took the Job wager and applied it to us. I love this. Now the Job wager, if you will remember, I want to teach about this specifically sometime. The Job wager was this. Satan went to God and God said, have you considered my servant Job? And Satan said, sure. Job loves you because you've always been close to him. Job loves you because you've always manifested yourself to him. Job loves you because all you've given him. Make yourself absent from him and see if he still loves you. And that was the wager. That God would withhold himself from Job in order to test that love. Now think about this for a second. If... God is always working miracles. If God is always replying to our every whim, if we can go from one sense of closeness to another sense of closeness, then is that love? Is that deep, committed love? Or is it just a natural response of gratitude? When can we tell if we are deeply committed to someone? When, we, when can we tell if we really love someone without condition? I'll tell you when. When we don't get what we want. When we can't even find that person. So what Jesus is saying here is that there will be a time when I will not be with you as you expected me to be with you. And I wonder if you'll still love me then. How deep is your love? Don't feel guilty if you have tried everything in your whole arsenal to, to fire yourself up for God so that you can hear it, there will be times when God is silent, when God seems absent. Do you still love Him then? Can you still praise Him then? That's the question. Secondly, there is an order here. It's not a request. It's not a suggestion. It's an order. And in verse 13, after he's handed out what resources he is going to hand out, he says, do business with this until I come. 
do business. That's the only word that, the only place in the whole New Testament that that Greek word is used. Do business. In some, in some um, uh, Bibles it says, occupy. And what it simply means is to use what I've given you. It's just that simple. Use what I've given you. Now let me tell you how this is a commandment. It's a commandment because of the third point, And that is when he comes back, he asks you that question. You see, there is no hiding from God. It seems like we have a choice in the world. It seems like we can remain anonymous. One of the things that's very interesting to see as a church grows, as this church is growing, this, you know, the last service was fuller than this service, and this service is full. We have a big church now. And part of the reason people come to a big church is because they just want to sit there and they just want to remain anonymous for a while, and that's okay. Because some of you have been hurt, Some of you just need a time to mellow out, and it may be quite a while that you need to heal up, and I want you to know you are welcome to do that here. And you don't need to volunteer for whatever board we have or whatever, you know. You don't need to do that until God has gotten you to the place where you can give. But make no mistake about this. God's plan for your life is not anonymity. And it is not mellowing out. And it is not forever to be in pain and in the process of healing. He wants to get you to a place where you will use what He's given you. And there is no hiding. Because He will ask you what you've done with it. What you've done with it when you come home. You know, I was reading a a fascinating article in Esquire magazine called Why Men Love War. And in that, there is a military historian, S.L.A. Marshall is his name. And he did some intensive studies during the Second World War and, and during the Korean War. And what he found out was fascinating to me. He said, out of all of the people who were in combat... Who were actually under enemy fire, now listen to this, only 25% fired back. 75% took their weapons and hid behind cover so as not to draw attention to themselves. How many Christians you know like that? How many of us? especially if we're in some sort of bureaucracy, have learned the system, well, the way I stay out of trouble is just don't say anything. I don't do anything. And I can mellow my way right through my career. And I can hide my way to safety. You can do that in the world. You cannot do that with God. There is no hiding with God. He's going to come and pick up whatever you're behind and play peekaboo on you. <laughs> yeah, and you're going to be looking and say, hi. You're going to say, what's happening? You say, well, it's, you know, kind of like, you know, Adam behind the bush. Adam, where are you? Whoa. Just right on back here. Thought I'd just hang out behind the bush. There's no hiding with God. There is no hiding with God. Whatever you have been given that could be given to other people, God will ask you what you've done with it. And I, know, I want you to notice also that the response to your using it is not retirement. <laughs> retirement is an American concept. It is not a biblical concept. There is no time. I was, I was my first church, a lot of old people, a lot of old people. And we'd say, I'd say, well, let's do this. You know, I'd get all fired up. You know, let's do this for Jesus. And they'd say, well, Sonny, you know, we've put in our time and let somebody else do it now. Well, there are only five young people in the whole church. I kept saying, who? Who's going to do it? You know, but they had a retirement mentality. There is no retirement mentality in that book. There is never a time in your life 
when God would not love to give you a more significant ministry than you have right now. He's just waiting for you to do the ministry you have right now. Okay? That's that. Plain and simple. No trick phrases. No deep meanings. Just a simple command. And we can either honor it or try to hide and be very, very embarrassed as life goes along. So the first thing I heard when I got back, <laughs> guess what happened last Sunday? What? Somebody spoke in tongues in the worship service. Really? What happened then? Well, some people walked out. Really? What happened then? Well, we just went ahead with the worship service. I am so grateful to be in a church like this. In the first place, I'm grateful to be in a church where anybody surprises anybody with anything. I mean, <laughs> it says we're alive. You know, it's great. We weren't, we weren't expecting that. Some of, some of the phone calls I got were really funny because it was, it was funny. Some of the mainline people called up and said, well, you know, I thought it was probably something that the worship committee put together, but I couldn't understand what was going on. <laughs> oh, that was really cute. Well, let me, before I get too far into this, just say to you, uh, there is, a, there is a, a pamphlet, if there's any left, uh, from the first service. Um, on, it, it has a little bitty tongues at Northland down here. And uh, it's a more detailed biblical explanation of kind of where we're at uh, on the whole thing. And you can pick that up and read it um, at your leisure. But what I want you to get is the general sense of it. And that's what I'm going to tell you right now. Northen is an odd church. It's a weird duck. And it's full of weird ducks. And the thing is, all the weird ducks think the other people are weird ducks. That's, that's, the, that's the curious part about it. The way the world forms a group, and the way many churches have been formed, is that people who are like-minded come together, and they say the things that comfort one another. And they say the things that everyone can agree with. The way most leaders are put together is that they are very comfortable as far as everybody going along the same line and everybody nodding when they say something. And what makes a leader very uncomfortable is to think that anybody would ever go like this. You know? And so, through the centuries, mostly churches, like world organizations, have gotten together where everybody agrees. And that's what they call peace. <laughs> well, that's not us. Now, there are some of you, let me start from square one here. There are some of you who have just never even heard of this concept of tongues because you grew up in a mainline denomination and, and, and you weren't with people who were either for it or against it. And so you don't know what in the world it is. Well, in the primitive church, in the first church, there, was, there were two incidences of speaking in tongues, two kinds of incidences. One was the incidents in Acts where um, at Pentecost the Holy Spirit rested upon the disciples, the church, and they spoke in foreign languages the gospel to people who interpreted for themselves those particular languages and they heard the gospel through that happening. Now that was a one time that's never recorded again in Scripture that that happened. There is another kind of speaking in tongues, though, that is recorded in the Pauline writings that is a... <clears throat> um, it can be another language or it can be an angelic language if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love. You know, one of those things. And those um, are basically conceptualized as when the Holy Spirit comes and fills a devotee to the extent that he takes over the mouth willingly. I mean, the, I mean, the Holy Spirit won't ever, ever force himself on anybody. But he takes over the mouth and he, and he works the tongue. Okay? 
in praise of God. Now, I want you to know that the church was not the only religious institution at that time that was experiencing this event. Many religions had speaking in tongues. Many religions still have speaking in tongues. It is not native to nor confined to the Christian church. So it is an event by which people believe that they are taken over and God himself can actually utter through people. Now, we have various people who have been brought up in a tradition of, of churches where that was a normal thing. That was a very normal thing to have happen in a public worship service. That's their background. We have also have people who were brought up in a tradition that were so afraid and so against that that they've heard it preached down over the years. They've heard other people be, been called crazy and so on and so forth. And, and you know, and, and to tell you the truth, there's a, there's a little ego in all of this, see? Or a lot of ego in all of this. Because the dispensationalists would say, well, you know, it's just, a, it's just an emotional reaction and, and those people really aren't mature. Well, I'll tell you what, I've known a lot of people who are charismatic who are very mature. And the, and the tongue speakers would say, oh, golly, unless they've been filled up the Holy Spirit and had the same, same thing I've had, they just haven't got it. Well, now that's a little arrogant um, on, on both sides because haven't you seen some folks that have never spoken in tongues that, that are filled with the Holy Spirit and they minister that Holy Spirit to you? So what we've got on both sides is a lot of arrogance and the scripture tells us that love is not arrogant or rude and it does not insist on its own way. And then there's, there's the people right in the middle who go, <laughs> I, I got to stay out of the debate because I don't know anything about it, you know? And uh, so, so what we've got at Northland is all three. We've got all three of those groups trying to live together. Now, it's a real strain living together with different people at Northland. First of all, as I mentioned before, you probably will go through thinking there's some real obnoxious people here, real crazy people. And I just want to ask you, first of all, have you never had anybody crazy in your own family, let alone ch your church family? Do you have no relatives that are nuts? Am I the only one that has nutsy relatives? I mean, I, had, I told you about my Uncle Harry. He used to say everything four times. Four times. Four times. Four times. He was crazy. He was nuts. Did we kick him out of the family? Of course not. Did he kick me out of the family because I'd only stand once or twice? Of course not. See? You've, being a part of a family is learning to live with each other's differences. That's what a family is is. It's learning to not, you know, let me, let me show you in here in scripture. Let me, let me show you a passage. If you'll turn with me to um, 1 Peter 4, 8. This is real important. It says, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. Because love covers a multitude of sins. Now let me ask you this. If love can cover a multitude of sins, why in the world can't it cover a variety of church traditions? Why can't it cover a variety of worship experiences? Why? Why are we so afraid? God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of love and of power and of a sound mind. We don't need to be afraid of differences. And I think we raise our kids to be afraid of differences, and I don't like that. Each, each tradition, and by the way, when you have powerful worship, 
That's what's going to come out. The tradition that you've been raised in. Somebody said, well, the first, the first thing I heard, maybe we need to tone down worship. Oh, no, we don't need to tone down worship. We need to have powerful worship. And one of the strengths of the whole charismatic movement has been that it has had powerful worship. You know why? Because intimacy requires a childlike trust. Intimacy requires freedom. Intimacy requires that we be able to relax and concentrate on the Lord God and allow whatever is inside to come out. That is intimacy. And so that has been very strong in the charismatic tradition. By the same time, by the same token, I've spent a lot of time in charismatic churches. And I need to be honest with you. I haven't heard a great deal of solid teaching that would allow and pull out intellectual growth. All I've, a lot of what I've heard is this senseless little uh, polyanic formulas, you know? Well, if you do this, you'll get this. The Lord's true. You know? And I'm thinking, come on, you know? Let's grow up with this. And what we get from the dispensationalists, from these strong investigatory minds that want to pull out the historical context and the Greek is a strong teaching and it is the um, absolute um, call of holiness on our lives see and that's that's important and then here in the middle what we get from the traditionalists from the people who came from a main line are all of the wonderful deep rich Truths of orthodoxy and ways of orthodoxy. You know, I've, I've told the worship committee, I hope that we can start um, using more uh, periodically Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed and the Lord's Prayer and the Doxology. I don't want my kids growing up and looking at the Apostles' Creed and going, hey, what's this? You know, we're missing that richness. But what I'm trying to say is we've got all of that here. We've got all of that here. And yes... If we continue to have all of that here, every once in a while when we have deep, touching worship, some of that's going to come out. And please, please don't get threatened by that. Because you know what? We are not mainly here to teach theology. We are mainly here to love. And we've got to widen our capacity to love people. We've got to broaden our capacity to accept people. Now, some people come into a church in order to teach us how to worship. Thank you very much. You know, God has sent me here to teach you how to worship. Well, again, arrogance, come on. Some people come in and say, well, I'm going to, you know, grow those charismatics up. Come on. Look to your neighbor. Love your neighbor. That's the order of the day. Now, is there a system by which, if you, and, and so the bottom line is, because we have that variety, and because we want everyone to be able to concentrate on God, we will not have, as a, as a model or as a norm, speaking in tongues in the public worship service of the morning. Because there are so many people who are so not used to it that the moment they hear it, their mind goes off God and on the person who is doing that noise making, as they think it is. And so that defeats the purpose of worship. The, the whole purpose of worship is to concentrate on God, see? And so when it is not a norm, then it becomes a distraction. And we don't want a distraction. Well, some of you who come from the charismatic say, well, what if God's given us a message? Are we quenching the Spirit? Don't quench the Spirit. Let me ask you to do something. Take that message to an elder and give it to an elder. Or myself, I usually sit right over here. I've got my pew. And I sit right over there. Bring it to me. Because we will hear it. And we will discern whether or not God is wanting to give that to the body. Now that does two things. First of all, it tests the spirits, according to 1 John 4.1. 1. 
And if you really know that's from God, you won't be afraid to have that spirit tested. And you have two that agree. That is a biblical process. You have two that will agree upon that message. And if it's in tongues, come tell us in tongues. If it's of God, he'll let us interpret. Second, it takes ego out of the process. If that message really is of God, you won't care who gives it, will you? If you are really concerned about just being a vessel instead of being the center of attention, what does it matter who gives it? So, it's important, it's important that we allow all people to express themselves. Now, those of us who are a little more loud and a little bit more expressive, go ahead. But just, I mean, go ahead with the, with the devotional thing, but try and, you know, God's not hard of hearing. He'll hear you. It's the five people around you who might be going, who you might just be quiet so that they can concentrate on God. But please, please, let's not divide up into, I'm on this camp and this, you know, have greeters at the door, clapping or non-clapping, you know. <clears throat> Devotional language over here, hand raisers over here, you know. You know. <laughs> Who cares about that stuff? You know, we got to give each other a break. I mean, I, you know, some of you come thinking, well, I love this church, but, I, you know, there's just some obnoxious people here. Well, you know what you can do? You can do what I can do. You can go home and look in the mirror and try and figure out how you ever came to the conclusion that you're such a great bargain. <laughs> That's what I do all the time. When I think I found somebody obnoxious. It's important that we are a family, that we are mature enough and broad enough to love. Our only togetherness is in Jesus Christ. That is our foundation. Not in our theology. You think, you think when you go to, go to heaven because of what Jesus Christ has done to you that the first thing God's going to say to you, so tell me what you believe about me. You know, is he going to be interested in your theology? He's not going to be interested in your theology. He doesn't care. Is he going to be interested? I know some of the Presbyterians have trouble <laughs> because some people wear jeans and a t-shirt. To, to worship. What's the dick? Come on now. Now, if you're wearing it because you just want to show God, that's one thing. But if you're wearing it because that's what you got and that's what you got to wear, who cares? I say be grateful for the small things. I have not yet seen one of those straw hats with a little beer can on the side. Be grateful for that. <laughs> Count your blessings. Every one of you is valuable to this body. God has sent you here for a reason. Every one of you, no matter what your particular background or experience is, is needed by this body. Now, if you know, you're, you're only comfortable with this and you've got to be comfortable with your worship and so on and so forth and you're not into stretching... You know, we understand that and we'll love you wherever you go. You know, you'll always be a part of us. You can't get away from us. Wherever you worship, you know, we will always love you. But if you are secure enough and if you like differences and if you want to be stretched, this is the place for you. Just remember to have deference toward your neighbor. The theme that will, you will hear again and again from now on is how do I love my neighbor more than I love myself? How do I lay my life down for my neighbor? Because that's the character of Jesus Christ. Now, let's take his supper that he gave for all of us. Would the ushers come forward? As the ushers are coming forward, let me share with you, if you have not taken communion here before, 
that all of you who are followers of Jesus Christ or decide that you want to be followers of Jesus Christ are welcome to this sacrament. As they pass the elements to you, if you would um, pass them to your neighbor and let your neighbor serve you, we will be singing during the communion. as a form of worship. Now let me pray to prepare us. Lord God, I confess that I get so wound up in my own world and in my own way of thinking of things that I do not give my neighbor priority. As a matter of fact, Many times I am so insecure that I cannot love my neighbor because of small differences. And so I accuse and I shut out and I isolate myself and I hide. All of us probably could confess that to you, Father. And at the beginning of this sacrament, we thank you for loving us while we were yet sinners. We thank you that in all of our idiosyncrasies that you just cared about our heart and that you passed over all of those things that were offensive to you in order to get to us, in order to pull us close to you. As we take these elements of bread and wine, let your spirit live in us. Help us to lay our lives down. We pray in your name. Amen.